0: Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations. So here's a bit about what they've done and how I came to know them. I cannot imagine anyone meeting Marnie Binder and not being enveloped by her warmth and intelligence. I knew most of her work, with art, children, and spirituality, but was delightfully surprised and engaged by her presence, her loving energy that radiated in each moment of our time together. I felt joy just meeting her. Marnie reinforced a belief I have long held, that teaching with holistic awareness awakens our own ever-deepening spirituality. Marnie Binder is an associate professor in the School of Early Childhood Studies Faculty of Community Services at Ryerson University in Toronto, Canada. Before coming to Ryerson in 2007, she worked in both the pre-service and graduate programs at the Faculty of Education York University. Marnie also taught in the inner city schools of Toronto for 23 years. Her teaching, research, artistic presence and publications in the arts, literacy, multimodalities, and spirituality in the lives of young children are rooted in art-based education research approaches and holistic philosophy. Marnie is the 2017 recipient of the Provost's Innovative Teaching Award at Ryerson. She's been enjoying an ongoing, Ekfrastic Collaborative Auto-Ethnography Project with a colleague from Acadia University in Nova Scotia. They are using poetry and the visual arts to explore personal and professional identities, past and present, and they are currently exploring what it means to be truly present in collaborative research. Some of Marnie's recent publications include Drawing as Language, Celebrating the work of Bob Steele and co edited with Sylvia Kind. I want to tell you a story, exploring the multimodal storytelling voices of children's lived experiences. Spirituality in the arts, interwoven landscapes of identities and meaning. And Marnie can be reached at mbinder at ryerson.ca. And further information is on her website, www.ryerson.ca slash ECS slash faculty slash Marnie Binder. Tell me about your passion. Tell me about what makes you do this. It can't be tremendous financial reward. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's,
0: it's certainly it can't be a lot of social great feedback. I mean, most of us don't get a whole lot of really good feedback from the world.
1: Well, I think I have to go back in time a little bit because I have two careers. I had, I'm in my second career. So the first career was teaching in the inner city schools of Toronto for to, over 23 years. And then I made the shift into the academy. But when I was teaching in the inner city of Toronto, um, during that time, I did a master's and I I started to, I did my doctorate. It was during the time that I did my master's work that I started to kind of question my practice more. And I had been teaching for over, I'd been, hadn't been back to university for 26 years. I'd been teaching for a fair bit of time. And it was when I went back to University of Toronto, um, University of Toronto, and I took Jack Miller's holistic education course, I went, this is the missing piece. I'd been very immersed in anti-racist education. I'd done facilitator training, um, working in the inner city. There was a lot of social justice work, which is still a huge part of what I do. Um, But the holistic piece was missing. And it also blended really well with my passion for the arts, which has been there since I was a little kid. And,
0: Wait wait, wait a second. What do you mean it was missing for so many... um... Uh, progressive educators social justice is the all in everything and to be able to teach in that field is often spoke about as uh, spoken of as self-satisfying and yet you're saying there was a piece missing what was the, what missing? Was the
1: holistic piece it was looking at you know because i mean especially in early childhood or in the primary grades um Everyone, you know, banter's the word. You know, this is holistic. This is the whole child. They use the W, which is nice. Um, and and I and I am shifting back to putting my W back in. And I, I remember being in a in a meeting with my primary teachers, and they were, you know, the, our our um, Ministry of Education in Ontario in Canada had put in, you know, we have to teach the whole child. And you know, I really had sort of going, wait a minute. So when I asked people if they could tell me what they thought that meant. Really, what they were talking about was integrating. They were talking about some of the domains, but the spirit of the child was missing. And so that, to me, that piece of identity and soul and who that child is, which is so wrapped up in the spirituality of that child, that was the missing piece. And when I did Jack's course, you know, I was I all of a sudden realized that, yes, I was doing anti-racist work. Yes, I was looking at social justice because in the inner city, if you're committed to work in the inner city... It's just a given that that's what you do. You're an advocate. But we weren't really looking. There was that missing component, which is the whole, the whole spirit of the child, the spirituality of the child. How does that inform how we understand the child and the families that we work with? So it, that started the ball rolling. And I was very lucky to have a principal who had taught in some alternative schools. She knew I was interested in holistic education and teaching through the arts, which, which is what I did. And her words to me were, you can teach the way you wish, you just have to be accountable. And that was before things got kind of dicey in Toronto, in Ontario, when we got an extremely conservative premier, and things became, the standardization became very difficult. I still managed to teach because I felt, and I still tell my students today, that I, I work the curriculum, it doesn't work me. So... That's so, sort of So,
0: what you're saying then is this particular administrator was able to just create a little bit of space that trusted you and had the experience of you such that you could go ahead and bring this forward.
1: Absolutely. I mean, part of that was, is she had, we had met each other when I was at another school teaching children with behavioral issues and some of them quite um, aggressive. And I had been teaching through the arts, so I would have scissors in the classroom, um, possibly not very good on one occasion. Um, but generally, I just felt that, well, why wouldn't I allow these children to do art? And why wouldn't they have scissors? People were horrified. But if she watched what I did, and we would. she had a grade 2, 3, I think, at the time and some and she would bring let my, some of my kids come into her regular classroom which some people had a lot of tr- trouble with they really felt these children should be separated and so she saw what with the potential of what i was looking at and she really understood it so i i guess i was very gifted i mean it was a gift to me and, and blessed that she was able to see that when she became a principal and she ended up coming to this, the next school that i was at um it wasn't that big a leap for her because but
0: she's answering to people up from her
1: yeah, and well, when we started off, we weren't, we had a different, it was more board specific, the curriculum, and, and then it became extremely provincial dominated. And when that sort of very ultra conservative streak came in, I still did it, and I also figured out ways to be accountable. I mean, the parents saw the children learning. I was able to sit down with them and say, here's, you know, what's happening with the work. This is what they're doing. I didn't say, I'm being holistic. I'm looking at the spirituality of your child. I mean, it was just the philosophy of how I approached teaching and learning.
0: And so, the medium was art.
1: The medium was art for me. Always has been.
0: Uh huh. Could you tell us, give us a little window into what a day in that would look, a day would look like?
1: Um, everything I did sort of had a very creative thread to it. Um, children. I always focused on you know. Children drew every day and and they wrote their stories, but instead of the very traditional, you write your story, write your story, and then if there's room in the bottom of the page, you draw your little picture, which is about, you know, teeny weeny. They drew first, and the kids would spend hours drawing to the point where sometimes they didn't get to the text until the next day. So what I found teaching through the arts did, or using arts-based approaches, was it allowed to slow down getting to the product, but it allowed for the process to unfold kids started to understand what, why art was important. They understood what imagination was. And so I gave them ownership and voice and agency, which I think was important. And I think for them, it was really important. These were children that came from a lot of different cultures. I had parents who had had very strict schooling, but they started to see things unfold. I did poetry, um, a poem a day. I mean, so I taught my reading program very often through poetry. Kids that d- couldn't read started to read through poetry. Um... We always had something creative. I had a paint center open all the time. So if there was tables were full and they were doing math or they whatever they were doing, two kids could always go to the paint center. So that was always open, um, which at, even in a grade two level now, you just wouldn't see it. It would be a choice at the end of a day or a frill on a Friday, basically. Um,
0: so as this agency unfolds in the children and yeah. they take... They take ownership that this is who they are that's coming forward.
1: Absolutely.
0: What kinds of things are you seeing in in the sense of their sense of self, and their ways of interacting with one another?
1: I think it, it helped build community because I did a lot of cooperative work with them, collaborative work. Um, the one-twos, you know, you'd come in and you wouldn't be able to say, well, oh, those are the grade twos, those are the grade ones. Or I have been taught multi-age groupings. I did a kindergarten one-two one for a couple of years. You you just saw actually what one of my student teachers asked me when he after a day in my classroom one time with kindergarten because he said could you explain this organized chaos to me which I thought was one of the best compliments I think I've ever had from my teaching and for me it was the fact that it was organized I knew what every child was doing I could see what was happening and some of them were very challenging but what started to happen is there started to be. I keep thinking of Josette's comments in the workshop earlier, the issue of trust-building in relationships. You have been talking about natural learning relationships for years. And I think that that's what it did. So by allowing creativity, by allowing, you know, someone who didn't feel good about their drawing, they had choice not to. I mean, not every child is going to want to, but they were always creative. And I think I did it through more problem-solving. So when we did a science lesson, for example, um, Oh, we had to, we developed, I, I wanted them to think of a machine that would help them get something in their ordinary lives done. And so we spent almost an entire week, um, very project-based approach, um, with piles of paper toilet rolls and boxes and all sorts of stuff. And they came up, they worked in pairs, and we did it every day. And they said, we mean, we're not doing math, we're not doing science. I said, think about what we're doing here. We're covering absolutely everything. And they came up with machines, everything from marshmallow toasters to homework machines to robots. And they spent a week creating these things. But what they had to do first was they had to discuss what they were going to make, how they were going to make it, what the machine did. Then they built it. And the only thing I did was I had an exacto knife because there were times where they needed holes punched in cardboard. Um, all but And one group I needed to work with a little bit more intensely. But they painted it, they wrote poetry about it, but the important part was at the end I had them reflect on what was really valuable about working with somebody else. And so here we were doing science, but they were building sculptures and robots and and they talked about how they worked and how with the sounds they made. So it was an awful lot of very creative stuff. So on just art space but incredible creativity. Being applied
0: and interpersonal knowledge, interpersonal understanding.
1: Absolutely, I played a lot of music when the the kids were working. um, Very often, I had one child who I can still remember him. He he really had trouble sitting down and working. He was much better standing up. Mm -hmm. And so you let him stand up, where he was really good. As if Bob Marley was on, and his little bottom would just sort of swing like a metronome. (laughs) It's a great image, I know, and I can still picture it. You know, it was a long time ago. Those things I hold very, very dear to my heart because they worked. These were inner city kids, a lot of challenges. The the classroom that I did my doctoral work on, actually out of 21 kids, I had 11 different languages and five different religions.
0: And I'm stunned. I mean, I'm stunned and just so happy to hear this, so genuinely happy. And that diversity, the the, the work, the the art, the opportunity, the projects, all of that, was a big enough medium mm-hmm. for all of those different all that diversity to find itself absolutely and then you found that the kids also were able to interact in a in I I don't and know. and
1: I allowed them to deconstruct like I would do visualization <clears throat> once a week with them um we called it imagining um but it was more sort of meditation pieces that I did I had stories from different people that I had found um that had done work with children and so we would do um very often we would do they would draw their pictures, or, their, they, or what they saw in their imaginations. And those sorts of things really worked, too. And they were doing, in this essence, a daily draw as well, because they drew first. So it, it it opened up their creativity. I can remember one time asking them, why is art important? And they said, well, if we didn't have art, there would be no color in the world. Oh, my gosh. Um, if you think first, no, you'd, you, you draw first to think what you write. I'm just trying to remember some of these comments for this. Some of it was in my thesis, and um, oh yeah, it they, they, they just went on from there. They really internalized it. They understood it. So what they they also proved to me that we really underestimate children. I think oh, they need to learn concretely, but I, they have an incredible capacity for abstract thinking.
0: Abstract thinking, non non linear knowledge. Absolutely.
1: And their spirits would shine.
0: What's happening for you while you're exploring this? What's I mean, you spent 23 years, maybe not totally traditional, but in a mostly traditional environment. Now you've seen something. You've allowed that to take over your practice. And now in your practice, you're watching this unfold. What's going on for you internally and in your own life as I think, a reflection? If, of... I, if,
1: I, if I look back, it's something actually that I'm... I'm... I think, and I mentioned this in the session this this afternoon, and I said the thing that I think is really happening is we're not, we're allowing children to do all this, but what are we learning? Your question really raises that. And Josette actually said, well, this is really under, this is not talked about. Here's all these holistic educators. We're talking about our practice, what's happening, how do we handle it through holistic education? What are we actually learning from the children? That's informed us. What
0: changes in us.
1: What changes in us. So what I'm looking at, I'm looking back at my teaching, but I'm looking back at some of the research I did when I went into Ryerson, um, which is very arts-based, Some a lot of it working with children, and also the fact that I've sort of returned to doing some of my own work. I'm not a trained artist, but I'm doing my own work and working with a, a colleague in Nova Scotia who does poetry, and we're doing this very incredible sort of, I would almost call it collaborative autoethnography. ethnography A a frastic kind of work together, exploring our coming into the academy as a second career, what influenced us as young kids, and sort of now how are we taking that and working with each other collaboratively, and why is it important to work collaboratively in the academy? Because generally speaking, you're seeing it, but I think everything, I think things are quite siloed still. That's the other beauty of the group, the holistic work. So, I mean, I look back on that, and to me, I mean, I can, I can just, I can remember the stories as if it was yesterday. I can still see the kids sitting in the classroom. It was a gift. It was a gift that helped me grow and understand the mystery, the awe and wonder, the um, learning that mistakes were okay, taking risks with my own teaching because they allowed me to.
0: And in taking risks with your own teaching, one of the one of I think I heard earlier that more and more you turned it over to them and you were more sort of the rudder in the ship rather than the wind in the sails?
1: Yes. I mean, I had responsibilities. And when the new curriculum came in, um, I had to sort of, there were things I I had no option to do and I had to, but I always tried to return back to that sort of authenticity or that truth, I guess is the only way I can put it. And I think I've brought that to my teaching of the students at Ryerson, or I try very hard to bring those principles in. It's even, I find it, it's almost even harder at the university level because they're so mark-driven, they're so competitive. If I don't do well, I can't get into the faculty of educations or I can't pursue this career. Um, some of them are not going to be A students in their undergrad, which I relate to because I, wa- I wasn't. It wasn't until grad school going through to the end of my master's where all of a sudden A's appeared, and then I went through the doctoral studies and I found, I found where I needed to be. But it was 26 years later from the undergrad. So I think that allowing for process for children to work in the schools, I had to sort of look at my own process. And how, was I pushing myself too fast, too soon, too quick?
0: It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person a wise fool or a trickster animal they can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story i have told teaching stories for the past 40 years and i love them and i have to tell you each time i tell one i learn much more myself where the wise fool lived there was a custom each year the king had a parade and if you caught the king's eye He had to grant you a boon. Well, one year, the parade was ongoing, and the king was going along in his chariot. When the wise fool jumped out of the crowd, jumped onto the king's chariot, and looked him right in the eye. Sighing and sort of expecting such behavior from the wise fool, the king said, Okay, what do you want? Majesty, said the wise fool, I want 500 gold pieces. 500 gold pieces, said the king. That's quite a lot. Um, You're a religious man. Ask God. Well, said the wise fool, I did ask God, and he said to ask you. Can you find meanings in this story about education? If so, send your insights to ba at lovemoreconsulting.com a three-person panel will select the most relevant stories, and they will be read at the end of a subsequent podcast. Again, that's b a @ l u v m o u r c o dot I look forward to your insights and to learning from you. Those insights selected will receive a copy of the award-winning book, So Valuable for Parents and Educators. Grow Together Parenting as a Path to Well Being, Wisdom, and Joy by Dr. Josette Lovemore. Yes, we have the same last name, and we are married, and we have been working together in holistic education for more than 30 years. But that's not the reason I offer this book. Check out her many accolades and the book reviews on our website, Lovemore Consulting. I have to ask you a question. Um, I I can't remember the exact date, but an early international holistic conference was in Guadalajara. It was a wonderful yes, with conference
1: with um, Ramon. Yes, and yeah.
0: yeah. And um, I gave a. I I talked to the whole assembly there, and my the point of my comments was. That from the point of a spiritual, not enlightenment, but awakening or um, deepening, that holistic education for the teacher had all that we needed. Mm-hmm. And that, um, really, if we did it all, all the way through, that that itself is a practice.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: I th- I, uh... Well, it wasn't, it was, it was w- w- widely accepted there, but there was a lot of opposition to it. Um, that we had to go outside the classroom to to develop uh, our sense of relationship, for example, before we could bring it into the classroom. That we had to go outside to develop a spiritual practice of some competency before we could just bring the kinds of reflective things that you just brought in quite naturally to the process.
1: You hit on something. I think also what I learned was... It helped me develop my own spirituality. It helped me place it and situate it, figure out where it really belonged. So um, being quite a lapsed Jew, um, <laughs> really lapsed. Anyway, it, I mean, and, and, I, and I sort of relate to other types of practices. I, I had never, and I, I think that working with the kids, I realized that there was, I could work with spirituality in a way that transcended religion. Although for many of my children, religion was their spirituality. So I also had to allow that. I keep thinking back to the, the very early work of like Linda Latieri and people like that. Like she, I remember when she was at the Holistic Conference, she talked a lot about that. And those things resonated, but I think it took me being in the classroom with the kids to start really looking at myself and and where it was my spirituality. I mean, yes, it was this X, Y, and Z when I was growing up and going to synagogue and this stuff. And then I broke away for reasons. And... But then how did I return or regain or rediscover a different kind of spirituality that I find is more relational with the people around me? And, and so I think you're absolutely right. I think that, yes, what I, think, I think it can come both ways. I think that you can discover it with the children, and then you can take it away and, and you question and you can work on developing that, and then you bring it back. So what you have is you have this wonderful give and take.
0: I, I'm I'm kind of emotional right now, and there's even a tear in my eye because I've held this over and over again, and and it's so important. It, I see it in families too. You know, children are a cost center, so we have to go out and and get rejuvenation, and we're going to come over and back into the family, and we're going to find the problem and deal with it. We're going to spend what we, and it's so sad because of what it puts us all in a box of objectifying one another rather than yes. here's this arising right in front of
1: us yeah. you be in the moment i mean i think also it taught me the importance of presence and to really look at that i mean and, i mean i can remember re- reading some of rachel kessler's work and she talks about that with we had a long conversation about 6 months before she died when she was at our conference about early childhood And we talked about the fact that, you know, we really, everyone talks about more the older child or the middle child, middle-aged child. We don't talk about the young ones as much. We really don't
0: talk, excuse me, we really don't talk about 7 to 12s, 7 to 11s. No. We don't. I mean. uh,
1: But the 0 to 7 we talk about in a different way because, well, young kids can only only do so much developmentally. And I kind of take developmentally out. Um, I'd like to kind of push it aside for a bit because I think that, that, Locks us into a certain perception, um, so yeah, and so I mean, c- going to Ryerson and working with the students that I do, I mean, I talk to my grad students about spirituality. I have brought it up with the undergrads. I've done a session for second years for a colleague on social emotional uh, social emotional development course. Um, slowly I was able to find my way in with it but I was very careful because you say the word spirituality I had students that just went up in arms in a master's course well if the word people feel uncomfortable with the word then don't use it find another word I went that's not an option and they were livid they went into the grad lounge and trashed me that was fine
0: Are you okay with that? Because sometimes I'm okay with it. Sometimes I wasn't gratefully.
1: I wasn't really okay with it at the time. I was very. They were quite toxic. Actually, It was not a good year for them. But it silenced so many other people that they couldn't get their ideas out. And what it was was it was an article on spiritual literacy that I had written based on some stuff I'd done from my thesis. And I was basing my spiritual literacy definition and 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 what I believed on the Broussat's definition of spiritual literacy, which was just basically understanding the texts of our own experience and I thought and I loved it it was just it was so simple and so clear and so to me so true and so what I did was I taught and to me it was about understanding the child and being true to the child and being true to yourself and at the time I was also using the Parker J. Palmer's his not his boundaries the hospitality and the non-judgmental sort of concepts of developing a classroom and that worked really well. And so for me, it wasn't that I'm, you know, you sit there and you, you tell the parents, well, today I'm going to do spiritual literacy in the classroom. It's not about that. It's your philosophy. It's a way of being. It's how you embody what teaching and learning is really ultimately about. So I navigate it a little differently sometimes with, with my students at the university level, especially the really young ones. Um, but more and more I'm finding they're actually craving it. And I find that because I do breath work at the beginning of my classes. Really? And the, so from yeah. the,
0: the graf the graph stuff?
1: No, I just I just do um
0: what, I, what body do you, what, scans. I, should I do ask I ask what I, you and mean I, do, by I, have work. Work. Yeah. I have them do breath work.
1: I have them do body scans with you know mental health issues are skyrocketing. So it helps them center and focus. And I think, you know, and, and when I talk about it, I say, look, you know, spirituality can mean many things to many people. And it can be through the religion, and we have a very huge Muslim population, so I'm I'm extremely aware and also aware of what's going on with the Muslim communities in today's world and the difficulties. So their spirituality is very much based on religion. And I, I also know very, you know, very Orthodox Jews and Christians. But when it starts, I said, but if you t- I talk about it in the sense that we have to understand that not everyone's spirituality is religious, that it becomes something more, and we're looking more at that inner landscape. or I call it children's cosmologies, which some people kind of go, well, she's really lost it now. But it is about children's no, actually, cosmologies. Thank you.
0: That's a beautiful statement.
1: Um, it is their stories. It is their cosmologies. And I think if you, if you look at, You know, what Thomas Berry, what Jack said about Thomas Berry and, you know, the ultimate sort of connection, well, that's really what we're all trying to do is develop our own cosmologies within the bigger scheme of things. And so art, to me, is a way of doing it um, and trying not to make it so Eurocentric, too. I mean, that's the other, but that's a whole other Peace is to honor the, the different traditions, but with the Aboriginal populations that we have now, and especially in Canada, with our truth and reconciliation, and trying to learn more. I mean, I'm quite connected to some people. Um, I, I find that you know I have to honor other traditions and wisdoms and ways of being and teaching, and one of them is the oral traditions. You know, and I've learned that. I mean, it's taken. I mean, I, you know, it, it's a growth for you.
0: It's a growth for all of us. I mean, that's. But I the think gift. we learn
1: that from children. Yeah. I really do. I think it starts for me. I think it started learning from children. If I didn't know, we have a in the in Regent Park. That it it was one of the largest um, urban um, Aboriginal communities, and a lot of difficulties. So, and a lot of the parents and the kids would not self-identify for very definite reasons. Um, you know, the residential schools, a lot of issues around um, dysfunctional families based on residential and, and gaps and family and like. Family being families being able to actually raise their children, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and understanding how. And it was learning about that that I think actually also turned me around. You know, so like there was a lot that I learned from the children. This is really good because now I think I can actually write about this. This is great. I should actually i need a I need a copy of this. Well, of course you'll get a copy of it. We're all going to get Soon. copies. Um, oh, I, well, I'm going to have it. to try and reflect I'll on do this. My but I best, think I yeah? think this is really what some of the core pieces were.
0: And, and so the other part of this, of course, is that there's a receptor in us, that there's something in us yearning to come forward. Yes. And that's, and that we found it here, we found it here. And it's not the idea, idea is not to make that the religion, but to say, oh, it's findable. And, yeah. and then we can celebrate all these different approaches.
1: And not to be afraid of it. I mean, I think, I mean, you know, we're we're all preaching to the choir here, but I mean, for me, this is like going to just this is going to nourish me and probably keep me going for several months coming to this conference. But um, I think the other thing is, I I I think that when I look at professional, personal, professional practice, I think so often, and it is a risk when you when you you sort of uh, remove the um, facade of professionalism. Like, this is how I am as a teacher, and this is how I am as a person, and we, I can't blend the two. And I think that that is also not good, because I don't think that you, you're you not being honest with yourself.
0: Well, you've objectified yourself.
1: Exactly. And but I think that's very common, and you see it in academia. Like I see people standing who want to be called professor such and such. Well, even in the inner city, no one called me by my last name. I mean, I abhorred it. And I, I won't allow it. I, there's certain cultures that until the students have, after they've had me, they'll call me by my first name, and that's fine. But, and that's fine. If it's cultural and they have trouble with it, I'll say, "What are you comfortable with Dr. Marney or Professor Marney And I said, okay, that's fine. You know, they did. They have to put the formality in. But I think that, you know, for me, someone said, well, there's an element of respect. And I thought, well, no, respect is earned. It doesn't come with my title.
0: I don't use it either. I You know?
1: I'm, yes. And so, for me, that was the other thing. I mean... There were times where, you know, I, I felt like I was just one of, I was a peer with the kids, which is kind of a scary thought in some ways. I was the teacher. I, almost, I had power. I have power in the university. If I could, I would change a few things um, so that they didn't feel that they were always working to the mark. But it's unfortunate that's the system. But while I have them there, maybe I can build their capacity. I mean, in a it, different
0: way. It just sounds in a very natural way what Bateson and Booba were talking about. That relationship is about a space between. Yeah. And yes, we don't give up our parenting, our teachership, or whatever. But that doesn't mean that we occupy the space between in an authoritarian way. It means that even more so, we're creating that space. We're allowing that space between to come forward. And it's
1: that liminality that I think is really important.
0: Say what you mean liminality. by
1: Liminality. Well, because... It's
0: uh, Four arrows this morning was taught, well, he and I were talking, and I'm a big guy in rites of passage. I've done lots of them, and um, he talks about trance states as necessary for education to truly unfold.
1: Yeah, I know. I know his, I'm very, very. I'm, I know yeah, his work well.
0: Sure. So, so that when you say liminality, are we? Is that the field that we're in?
1: It, it can be, but you're talking about the spaces in between, and I know when I talk about my art. And spirituality, and I and I wrote a piece on spirituality in the arts for Miriam, for anyway for a, a book on um, spirituality across the disciplines. Um, and it was a hard chapter to write because I couldn't use education. <laughs> they wanted me to write about the arts, and so it was a challenge. And I ended up bringing people that I know that do it in education or do arts-based education, like Celeste Snowber and um, some other people that 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 work with arts-based education research or arts-based research. But one of the things I, I talk about is that liminality. It is, it's is—it's that space in between where you're allowed to just sort of sit and be. Uh, and maybe it is what you're talking about. Maybe it's very similar, that space in between that Buber that talks about. I had never really explored it like that, but it could be. But it's that third space. It's that other space that sometimes we don't allow just to to be there, where you're sort of in between and you you're sort of there for a bit. You're hanging. Before things progress or shift.
0: So, Marnie, we, I could go on forever. I know. And you could too. And Sam's Sam, waiting outside. Yeah. But is there anything you'd like to leave? In other words, people are listening. What do you want to leave us with?
1: I think the thing that I'm thinking about a lot lately is there's so many of us around. We're all, I mean, it's wonderful when we see each other at these conferences. But how do we start nurturing the next generation to sort of take this up and start moving forward with it? Because... The reality for me is we're not all I mean it's not we're not dying off anytime soon that's not what I mean but the thing is you know we're not going to be coming to these conferences all the time anymore there's going to come a point where we don't or we can't who's going to be how do we foster to keep things going or to keep the the ideas of holistic education alive and i'm seeing it from these educators that are around this area but i can also see the challenges that they're having
0: And in the current climate, the challenges have become more intense. But I
1: think there's something happening. I'm not sure what it is, but there is something happening. Whether it's what Farrell is talking about, is this importance of a worldview of indigeneity, returning to this sort of understanding of ancient wisdom. I think people get nervous about it. I also think people think it's a little New Agey sometimes, too, which is the other problem we have in Holistic at, at times. I think I just want people to understand that, you know, they that they can enter in at any point that it's not something that's going to come immediate, that it's not something that has a recipe or, you know, you you read Jack's book and you can become a holistic educator. It's something that you actually have to start really internalizing. And in order to do that, I think you have to really question who you are. And it may be, you know, who you are at 23 or who you are at 40 or 60 or whatever, you're going to just continue growing and you're going to be redefining and rethinking what these essentials actually mean to you and how they, you know, and then how does that impact or how do you enter into the space of teaching and learning with children or people at a university level? And I think we just have to keep that, you know, remember that authenticity, organic approaches, and truth are really important.
0: Well, thank you for doing the podcast, but also thank you for your work and your care. It's very meaningful. And thank you. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is a production of Lovemore Consulting 2, LLC. Copyright Ba and Josette Lovemore, 2018. Our sound engineer, Dimitri Young. Our webmaster, Nathan Young. And our all-important media maven, Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at lovemoreconsulting.com.com. Podcasts. Please visit us on Patreon at patreon.com/slash Remarkable Educators to help us reach more listeners and to invite more remarkable educators to engage us with their inspiring work and ideas in holistic education. I and Josette Lovemore would also like to thank Self-Designed Graduate Institute. We teach there, and at Self-Design, we nurture each learner's ability to explore inner and outer worlds and discover his or her own deep understanding and vision. Go to the SDGI website and see for yourself. That's www.selfdesigninstitute.org. This is Ba Lovemore, reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.